that true greatness is, is really found in being a humble servant. That's what God considers to be a great person, the person that is a humble servant. You can have all the money in the world. You can be the best-looking person in the world. Uh, you can have all the fame and notoriety in the world, but uh, in God's eyes, if you're not a humble servant, you're not leveraging those things to serve the people around you, then you're not great in God's eyes. Um, so that's the, that's the measure of greatness, a humble servants. And, you know, Christ was the embodiment of what it means to be a humble servant. I mean, he's unsurpassed in his willingness to reach down and to serve those that uh, are on the outside of the mainstream, that are on the fringes, the marginalized. And last week we looked at one aspect of Jesus' humility. We looked at that he came from some very humble roots. Sure, King David was mentioned in his genealogy, but there were some women that were mentioned in that genealogy and, and that really emphasized that Jesus chose to come from a family that was messed up. It was broken, prostitutes, idolaters, you know, you, you name it. Uh, they, they seem to be in that genealogy. And so, um, and the reason why he did that, we talked about last week, is because he wants us to know that he came for messed up people like you and me. And he has such a heart uh, for those who are broken and hurting. So today what we're going to do is we're going to look at another aspect of Jesus's humility, which is his humble birth. And we're going to look at what he had to leave in order to become born as a human being. So we're going to be camped out in John chapter 1. It's a fantastic chapter of scripture. Um, I encourage you, if you like to have a Bible in your hands, go ahead and you can start turning there. If, if uh, you're fine with reading the verses on the screen, you can do that as well because they're going to be up there. So let me pray and then we'll read this amazing passage of scripture. Lord, thank you that we get this opportunity to be a family together and to open up your word. What a blessing it is to us. And thank you that we get to consider more about who you are and your great humility that you exhibited by being willing to become a human being. Lord, I pray that as we consider this again this Christmas season, that we wouldn't become desensitized to this magnificent miracle, one of the greatest of all, and that we would see just the great, we'd see the great lengths that you were willing to go so that we could be in your family, forgiven, to have our debt paid, so that we could be rescued and redeemed and experience eternal life with you that starts now and will last forever. And so, Lord, we pray that you would turn our eyes and our hearts to you, that you would remove the distractions in our heads so that we can focus on your glory this morning. It's in your name that we pray, Jesus. Amen. All right, so John 1, let's check it out. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, 
and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness, to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me. He was before me. And of his fullness we have all received in grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father has declared him. All right, so there's God's word for you. In this passage, you know, this is, you know, last week we talked about how some people, when they say, all right, I'm going to start reading the Bible, they've never read the Bible before, and they turn to Matthew, the beginning of the New Testament, and they encounter a genealogy, right? And that can be difficult if that's your first experience trying to read the Bible. Well, you know, it's similar with John chapter 1, I think, in some ways, where you may say, all right, I'm going to start reading the Bible. You open the, the, the Bible to John chapter 1, because yeah, somebody tells you to read it, and you're introduced to this passage, and then there's the Word, and who's the Word, and then there's a lot of lights, and it can be a bit confusing, right? Um, although it can be a bit confusing, this, this passage is so spectacular, and I'm hoping that as we talk about it this morning, I can make some sense of it for you, and it will just uh, leave you just being so in awe of God. So, all right, in this passage, we're introduced to this mysterious figure, right, the Word. So, uh, and what we learn about the Word right from the beginning is that the Word was from the beginning, that He was there in the beginning. And then we also learn about the Word that he was with God, okay? So this word is a person that was with God, meaning he had this interpersonal relationship with God. He was relating to God. And then we read a bit further in our passage, and we learn that not only was this word, this mysterious figure, a person that was there in the beginning and was relating to God, we also learn that he was God, And this is where John, the writer of this gospel, really starts to just bend our brain, right? Like beyond its limits. All right, so you're telling me that this mysterious figure, the word, was there in the beginning with God. So he's his own person, but yet he, he was relating to God, but yet he was God too, right? 
And what we have here is we have the, the, the building blocks of the doctrine of the Trinity, that God is one God in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, that, and they all relate to each other, and they've always existed. And it's not until you get to the 14th verse of this chapter that you find out who this mysterious figure called the Word is. It's Jesus Christ. That's who the Word is, God the Son, always existed with God the Father and God the Spirit in loving community from eternity's past, right? And so what I want to do with you is consider why Jesus, who has always existed, him becoming a human at his birth was just such a phenomenal miracle of all miracles to have happened. I'm going to give you three reasons that I want to focus on this morning, and here they are. Because we really have to understand Jesus's pre-incarnate glory, his pre-incarnate life, his life before he was born, in order to really understand how phenomenal it was that he came to be born as a human being. So here are the three reasons why this is so spectacular. When Jesus was born a human, he left the bosom of the Father, so we're going to talk about that, he left behind the praise and pleasure of heaven, and he veiled his physical glory. So he left the bosom of his Father, left behind the praise and pleasure of heaven, and he veiled his physical glory. So let's look at each one of these so we can see how just amazing these, these things are that he left and that he was willing to do it. Uh, number one, Jesus left the bosom of the Father. So when Jesus, or when John says that Jesus is the Son of God in verse 14 and that he is the begotten of God in verse 18, I think one of the things that John wants to do here for us is for us to understand the relationship that God the Son had with God the Father. He wants us to think in terms of the best father-son human relationship that we can possibly think of. Because as we start to think about a great father-son relationship, we start to begin to understand this intimacy by which the father and the son have always known each other and have related to one another. So let's think about a great father and son team, right? So what would be some of the characteristics of that relationship? Well, the father would be pleased with his son. The father would be intimately acquainted with his son. A father would, you know, uh, that, that father would serve his son, care for his son, love to be with his son. And let's imagine, all right, from the son's perspective and his relationship to the father, what would that be like in, in the ideal, the best Father-son, you know, human relationship that you can imagine. Well, the son would love his dad more than anything else. The son would want to please his dad, want to make sure that his dad is well thought of, would want to serve his dad, would want to be, you know, is thankful for his dad. And so that, and when we start imagining that, we start to get a glimpse of what this relationship was like before the world even began. God the Son and God the Father were always enjoying each other in, in, in a relationship that was just full of love and joy and intimacy and communion. And if you look at verse 18 of our passage, John uses this word, 
bosom. He says that Jesus is in the bosom of the Father. Now, if you were to look up the word bosom and how it's used in the Bible, you would find that when that word is used, it's used to express just the most intimate of relationships. In fact, if you were to read later in John's gospel, it talks about how Jesus at the Last Supper, he was with his disciples, and John, the the disciple who wrote this gospel, it it, it says this about John. Now, there was leaning on Jesus's bosom, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Now, did Jesus love the other disciples? Sure, he loved the other disciples, but this one in particular, he had such a close and intimate relationship with, the one who authored the gospel we're we're reading this morning. It's the place of closest intimacy. I mean, think of a mom with a baby and how she holds that child right next to her chest, right? And so John, he knew what it meant to be held in a person's bosom because he was held in Jesus's bosom. And so he knew what that word meant. And so... Think about what Jesus, the the Son, God the Son, had with God the Father forever, right? Until he was born a human. And so we got to think about this. So when Jesus was born a human, this is at the point where, in some respects, the relationship would have changed. Now, we don't know exactly to what extent that relationship and the intimacy changed, uh, we, we do know that Jesus continued to have a close, intimate relationship with God the Father. But we do know that there was separation. And in fact, the separation became so complete and so total that when Jesus was on the cross, he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so... Jesus, who spent all of eternity in the bosom of the Father, allowed himself to get to the place where he was so separated from this loving relationship that the separation was complete and it was total. And when I was thinking about this, the only way that I can start to make sense of this is if I think about my relationship with my boys. And and I started thinking about my relationship to Elijah, right? Elijah, he's seven. But since the day he was born, he has always been my shadow. He just has always wanted to be where I am at. He's always wanted to do what I do. If I'm, you know, working, you know, it's from the time he was little, he was always just there. Right. Um, when I want, when I go play basketball, he'd want to go be in the gym with me and just be with me and be on the sidelines. When I played, when I, you know, watched sports, he wanted to be on my lap. It just was the way it's always been. Um, I can still remember when he was about three years old. Uh, we were leaving a friend's house. Uh, well, at least Mary was taking the boys and going back home with them, and I was going to stay and watch the Ohio State football game there, and he just, it devastated him. Like, we, we had to pry him off of me, and he was, I just, you know, he was crying and just throwing such a, 
It's like I was betraying him. We watch sports together, and you're going to do this with other people. It's just the way it was. And I think that's why, because he's always been like my little mini-me in my shadow, why I struggled so much when he went to kindergarten. I've told you about this before. And that's only, five, it's only after five years of enjoying you know, life with him. Can you imagine... I, I, we just can't. I mean, we can't imagine having a relationship with the Son that has gone on for all of eternity and then experiencing total and complete separation. Now, why is the question. Why? Why would Jesus intentionally, and God the Father, why would they decide together that Jesus would leave the bosom of the Father? Well, the answer is because so that you could be placed in the bosom of the Father. That's why Jesus left it. Jesus left the Father's embrace so that you could be embraced. Jesus left that that perfect relationship that he had going on so that you could have a relationship with the God of the universe. So... That's the first thing. Think about the humility that it took for Jesus to be willing to do that so that you could be placed in the Father's bosom. Think about that. He was willing to go to that place of total separation so that you wouldn't have to be separated from God. That he crushed that insurmountable wall that was keeping us from the Father. And it was our wall of sin. And he totally crushed it by dying for our sins in our place. All right, so let's look at the second thing. Second reason why this is just him being born a human is such a miraculous thing and shows Jesus' humility. Jesus left behind the praise and pleasure of heaven. All right, so heaven is always kind of hard for us to wrap our minds around, right? Like, where is heaven? What is heaven? And it's hard to explain, but I think heaven, a good way of thinking about it is, is that heaven is God's space. Heaven is his, I mean, God is everywhere, present, all the time, omnipresent. But it's in heaven, it's almost like where the hot spot of his personal presence dwells. It's his his abode. And heaven is a place, um, a dimension where what God wants done gets done. It's a place of beauty. It's a place of righteousness. It's a place of holiness and goodness and, 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 and joy. And every so often, if you read through the scriptures, God allows some people to get a glimpse of God's space. And these glimpses reveal to us some just amazing things. So there have been some people like Moses and Daniel and Ezekiel and Isaiah and John. They've been able to get glimpses into heaven, into God's space, into the throne room. And you can tell that what they saw is really hard for them to describe. And it's almost like words can't express the visions that they saw. But what they do express regarding what they saw gives us an idea of just what this space is like. You know, they talk about seeing things that look like smoke and fire and light and precious metals and 
stones and otherworldly creatures and, and rivers and thrones and various colors. We can't even wrap our minds around God's space. And they almost all mention that in God's space there are these angels. And these angels as Daniel says, are innumerable. There's an innumerable, innumerable amount of angels in heaven that serve God continually. Isaiah, in his vision, he saw God sitting on a throne, and there were angels around God chanting, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Um. You know, John, he saw angelic beings around the throne of God in his vision, in his glimpse of, of heaven. And he saw angels unceasingly saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. They do that day and night, never stopping. What else do we know about heaven well, we also know it's a place of pleasure and joy. Jesus, when he was hanging on the cross and the thief was next to him on the cross, Jesus told the guy, hey, today you will be with me in paradise. Heaven is paradise. King David, in talking about, uh, talking about God, he said, at your, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. In your presence there is fullness of joy. And so we're talking about a place where Jesus was worshipped by literally hundreds and hundreds of thousands of angels. If you read in Revelation, it talks about a myriad of angels. A myriad is like a number, like it's just like a infinity, right? Like you can't express it, it just goes on and on and on. And so Jesus left this place where he was worshipped by, by angels continually, unceasingly, a place of great pleasure and joy, a place that he had been enjoying for all of eternity. And he left that place to become an embryo inside of a poor teenager in the middle of nowhere. Why? Why would Jesus do that? Why would he leave that place? Knowing that he would go from receiving that worship of those angels to coming and being rejected by his people. By reject, being rejected by the world. John 1, 10, 11 says, He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and in his own did not receive him. So the world he created, he became, he came in it, and he was rejected by the world. And then even the, his very special people, the Israelites, who he picked out, just out of his grace to love them, they would even reject him as well. And they rejected him to the point where he was placed on a cross to be killed, to be ruthlessly murdered. Why would he leave a place of paradise to come hang on a cross? Why would he leave God's space? The reason he left God's space is so that you could 
be in God's space. The reason why Jesus left heaven is so that you could have heaven, so that you could enter into heaven. The reason Jesus endured suffering is so that your joy could be made complete. The reason why Jesus endured the, the feelings of displeasure is so that you could experience pleasure eternally in God's kingdom. John writes in, in John 1, 12 and 3, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And so I ask you today, do you believe in Jesus' name? Have you received him as your king and savior? The end of the book of Revelation uh, just it explains this beautiful and, and gives us this beautiful picture of this time when Jesus returns and he brings heaven with him. In heaven, God's space and earth, our space are no longer separated anymore. And heaven comes to earth and completely engulfs and overlaps earth so that heaven and earth are married together, they're one, just like it was back in the Garden of Eden. No, no separate places. Will you be a part of that? Will that? Is that your future that you're looking forward to? Jesus left the bosom of his Father so that we could be placed in it. Jesus left behind the adoration and pleasure of heaven so that we could enter into heaven. And Jesus veiled his physical glory. Let's look at that. So another aspect of Jesus' great humility is that although he was equal with God, shared all the attributes of the Father, he, he purposefully chose to have all of those attributes veiled in becoming a human being. Um, another fixture, if you were to look at these uh, visions, I think there are about 11 of them throughout the scriptures of when a man was given the privilege to glimpse into heaven. Another fixture of these, uh, th of their glimpses are seeing God on the throne, getting a glimpse of God in his throne room on the, the throne. Uh, when Isaiah saw God sitting on the throne, he, he noted that the train of God's robe filled the temple that he saw God in. And when God spoke, the foundations of the temple shook. Look at Ezekiel's description when he was able to glimpse into the throne room and seeing, see God on the throne. This is what he saw. Ezekiel 1, 26 through 28. And above the firmament, over their heads, was the likeness of a throne, in appearance like a sapphire stone. On the likeness of the throne was a likeness with the appearance of a man high above it. Also from the appearance of his waist and upward I saw, as it were, the color of amber with the appearance of fire all around within it. And from the appearance of his waist and downward I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire with brightness all around like the appearance of a rainbow in a cloud on a rainy day, so was the appearance of the brightness all around it. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. 
So it's just like our minds can't really compre- grasp it or can't comprehend it. And when these m- men got a glimpse of God on his throne, guess what happened to them? They all fell on their faces like dead men. That's what happened to them. You see, God's physical beauty, God's glorious attributes, if you were to see that all at once, his power, his holiness, his righteousness, and so on and so forth, just to get a glimpse of him in his glory is enough to make you fall on your face like a dead man. Why? Why? Because even a sense of God's greatness makes us feel as small as a molecule. Even a glimpse of God's holiness makes us feel like a ruthless, despicable criminal. Even the sense of God's beauty makes us feel just so ugly and shriveled. As we uh, are, and we know Jesus shared in the glory with the Father. Um, from all eternity past. In fact, in Jesus's, on, you know, in his earthly life, he said to the Father right before he was about to be crucified in John 17, 5, and now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, check this out, with the glory that I had with you before the world was. One day when Jesus was on earth, he allowed John, the writer of this gospel, Peter and James, to get a glimpse of his glory. You remember the story when he's transfigured on the mount? And uh, he pulls back his humanity, Jesus does. His, His humanity is pulled back and they get a glimpse of this glory that he's had forever, right? That's been veiled. And Matthew 17 2 says this, his face, Jesus' face, shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. And when they, James, Peter, and John, were looking at Jesus, they heard God say from heaven, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. And this is why John, I think, is able to say in our passage, chapter 1, in verse 14, he's able to say this. In the word, Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us. And check this out. We beheld his glory. We beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And what happened next to Peter, James, and John after they saw Jesus shining like the sun? Well, they fell flat on their faces, just like everybody else does. And it was just a glimpse, just a glimpse of his glory. You should uh, check out, I'll let you do this at home, check out Revelation 1 and John's glimpse of Jesus in Revelation 1 and the description of it. It's fantastic, spectacular, even more spectacular than what I just read to you in the Mounts of Transfiguration. So, Jesus, in deciding to become a human baby, decided to veil the glory of his beauty, his character, and his attributes. If he would have unveiled his glory while he walked on planet Earth, everywhere he went, by everyone that encountered him, would be falling flat on their faces 
as they were unable to behold his immense glory and beauty, they would fall on their faces and be caused to worship him. That's what Jesus deserved everywhere he went. Like, it makes me think of those videos. You ever see the videos of the Beatles when they're going around and you have, like, women just, like, just like they're just, they, like, pass out and, oh, my goodness, and if they can only touch them. And, you know, Jesus deser- deserved to have that kind of a- attention by every single person that he crossed Every single moment he was on planet Earth, and if he would have unveiled his glory, but he chose not to. He chose not to so that he could become a human. Why? Why would he do that? He didn't even come into the world as a good-looking person. Think about that. Isaiah talks about, hey, He he writes this, Jesus had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He wasn't even a good-looking human being. Why? Why would Jesus veil his glory even to the point that he became a bloodied, mangled blob of flesh on a cross? Why? Well, for those of us that have, as Jesus tells us, have believed in and received Jesus, we get to share in Christ's glory. Jesus veiled his glory so that you could share in it. 1 John 3, 2 tells us this. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him. For we shall see him. Check this out. We will see him as he is. Romans 8, 17 says, we suffer with him that we may also be glorified together. When God glorifies a human being, what he does is he, he grants that person the privilege of being able to behold his infinite beauty and splendor without having to die. And we get to become like him. We get to become like him by giving a new body that will not grow weary, that will not grow tired, that will not have allergies or need wheelchairs or crutches, that won't be prone to addictions and diseases. No more pain, no more frustration, no more disability. Everyone strong, everyone radiant with the beauty of Christ. A body that's imperishable. Another thing that Christ will do to us so that we share in his glory is that we will be given, we'll be made glorious on the inside and we'll fully have the fruit of the Spirit at last. You see, he veiled his glory so that we could share in his glory. He became, he became this baby So that we could have the Father, he became this baby so that we um, could live with him in glory. And he became this baby. What's the other point? Losing it. So that we could have heaven. 
so that we can endure the, uh, in, in, in forever and have the pleasures of heaven. And so that's the, just the tremendous miracle that is the incarnation. Think about what he left, the humility that he exhibited for us to have these things. Let's pray. Lord, it's really hard for us in our human minds to fathom and to understand that you've always existed, Jesus, with the Father and with the Spirit, and that you've always existed in a loving community that you were, you all decided, and Jesus, you were willing to leave, to become a human for us. Lord, we are so thankful that you are willing to do this. That you are willing to <laughs> go from the bosom of, of the father to the bosom of a teenage girl who you made yourself depend on for everything. And Lord, you didn't even come as a, as a good-looking, attractive person. But you veiled your glory to the point where you're willing to go to the cross. And, and this is all so that we can be a part of your family, so that we can enjoy heaven forever, so that we can uh, be glorified with you, and so that we can behold your glory in all its fullness and all its splendor and enjoy it and get to see it. Lord, may we not become numb uh, to what Christmas is all about, but may we not be distracted by the miracle of, of, uh, of the things that will keep us from the miracle of Christmas. Lord, we love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.